When I was young, I was a picky eater, like really picky. I lived for buttered noodles. In fact, when I was in middle school and I went to Spain, I packed Kraft mac and cheese in my suitcase because I was so afraid I wouldn't find anything in that whole country that I would like to eat. My brother, on the other hand, ate everything in sight. He wasn't afraid of any food and he loved trying new things. And he had this really annoying habit where he would sort of wave the offending food in my face and say, you're missing out on lots of yum. And I hated it. It drove me nuts. But you know what? He was right and I was wrong. You see, as I got older, I found myself in more situations where I needed to eat the food in front of me or come across as rude. And so I just started trying things. I started eating what I was served to avoid feeling embarrassed. And I discovered the world of food. And I have to tell you, this is a passion point for me now. I love food. And I love trying new foods, especially when I travel. And I love the opportunity to cook new foods. I just really love food. If I had never changed my mind, if I had never been open to new things, I would have never discovered figs wrapped in prosciutto with goat cheese and a drizzle of honey on top. I would have never tried conch fritters. I would have never made from scratch Julia Child's beef bourguignon. And now I love all of those things. The truth is, without a change in perspective, I would have missed out on a lot of yum. Now, expanding a food palette is just a simple example of what we're talking about. But this was an overarching theme that I saw throughout Acts chapter 10, 11, and 12. And that theme is a change in perspective. First, in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter gain a new perspective. And it happens in this pretty radical and perfectly ordained way where God is making each step so important and so clear. Step by step, God is preparing Peter to change his perspective. Peter's new perspective. Have you ever looked at a situation, looked back on a situation, and seen the way that God was orchestrating things perfectly all along the way? Each and every step he was working towards whatever his goal was, towards whatever new and exciting thing he was doing. I've definitely seen this in my life several times, but most importantly, at sort of like big, pivotal life change moments. But sometimes the steps didn't make sense, or sometimes the steps were even confusing or painful. Sometimes the steps felt like backward steps in life and not like I was moving towards something that was ultimately going to be good, like the time I quit a stable job at the coffee shop for a new opportunity that fizzled out in less than two weeks. And I was thinking, God, what am I doing here? What are you doing with me? But through that process, God was preparing me in just a few short months to enter into my career in ministry but I didn't know it at the time. But I think that's how God often works as I look back on my life. Often he gives us little glimpses of what he's doing. He doesn't give us the full picture at once, but instead he prepares us just in the way we need to be prepared step by step by step. And I see him do this with Peter as well in the new and exciting thing that God is doing. So we read this story in our Bible study last week, but there are a few important things I'd like to point out from Acts chapter 10. First, at the start of the story, 
Peter was staying with Simon the Tanner. Now, a tanner was a person who cleans dead animal hides for a living. So even though Simon was a Jew, he would have been considered ceremonial un, ceremonially unclean over and over and over every time he touched one of the bodies of these animals. And yet, we see Peter staying there and accepting this man's hospitality. You see, Peter knew that this was exactly where God wanted him and that by staying with Simon, he was following God's direction and that helped him overcome any hesitancy he might have experienced in breaking the Jewish laws. The second preparation that God was using and this radical change that he was going to make through Peter, he gives a man named Cornelius a vision. Now here's what we know about Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion, which meant he was a leader of a large group of Roman soldiers. He was a relatively high-ranking official. He was courageous and loyal. We read that he was God-fearing, which means even though he wasn't a Jew, he did believe in the one true God. And we know that he was kind and charitable. He was, in so many ways, the perfect choice for God to pave this road for the Gentiles to come into his church. And so, in the story, as Cornelius is praying, this is significant, God speaks to him. God speaks during prayer. God gives directions during prayer. We'll come back to this later, but it's so important for us to pay attention to how God communicates in these moments. And so, during this vision, God, God gives Cornelius some clear directions on exactly where to go to find Peter at the house of Simon. And so as God communicates with Cornelius and sends him to Peter, now comes the third step of preparation. And that is that Peter is given a vision by God. And Peter's vision, which we read about in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16, is an interesting one. You see, as Peter is praying... Remember what I said before, that's important. God speaks during prayer. God gives directions during prayer. As Peter is praying, he has a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven and it's filled with every kind of animal. And God says to kill and eat. Now Peter's response reveals just how extraordinary this thing is that God is doing. Let's take a look at verses 14 to 16. No, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times and the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter is shocked and confused by this vision. In this moment, his prejudices are revealed. But before we be too harsh with him, Peter thought he was doing every single thing a devout follower of God should be doing. This vision is contradicting everything that he's grown up with, the traditions and what it means to be holy and to be set apart. And now all of a sudden he has this vision that tells him something different. What a confusing place this must be for Peter. He's grown up following the law, maybe not exactly perfectly, Maybe not all the time, but food was an extremely important part of the law. And oh man, are these rules specific? If you'd like to learn more about the rules regarding food, 
Leviticus 11 is the place to read all about this. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to give you a few examples. Animals with cloven hooves that part, not entirely sure what that means, and choose the cud are okay. Excluded from that, camels, rock badgers, hares, and pigs. Animals in the water with fins or scales are good. Any animal in the water without fins or scales is a no-go. Nearly all birds, except eagles, bearded vultures, black vultures, kites, falcons, ravens, ostrich, nighthawk, seagull, which gross, hawks, owls, I'm pleased to say I love owls, storks, herons, and some other birds, which I actually don't even know what they are. And this chapter goes on. And then we get specific on bugs and lizards and rodents. And then we get a list of rules of what constitutes clean and unclean dead animals and how to become clean if you accidentally come into contact with a dead animal, how to purify yourself, what to do if a dead animal falls into a cistern, etc., etc., etc. There are a lot of rules and they are very specific. These were the laws that good Jewish people like Peter would have followed his whole life. And what he, this is what he grew up learning was the good and right way to worship his God. And of course, the whole situation goes way beyond food. We know that by reading a little further on in Leviticus 20. But I have promised you, you will possess their land because I will give it to you as your possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from all other people. You must therefore make a distinction between ceremonially clean and unclean animals and between clean and unclean birds. You must not defile yourselves by eating any unclean animal or bird or creature that scurries along the ground. I have identified them as being unclean for you. You must be holy because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from all other people to be my very own. Right here in Leviticus, we see clearly the connection between clean and unclean animals and clean and unclean people and how God wanted his people to be set apart from the Gentiles around them. The idea of Jew and non-Jew and clean and unclean food are inextricably tied. And that's why this vision becomes extra confusing because it's not just about food. But God's doing something new. He's breaking down these barriers and these walls, and he's using Peter to open up the kingdom of God to the Gentiles. He's asking Peter to overcome some strongly held beliefs and to open something new. But he doesn't just hit Peter over the head with it. He takes him on a journey of understanding step by step. And of course, just at the time when Peter is wrestling with what this vision might mean, Cornelius shows up at his door and it all becomes clear to him. And the future of the church changes forever because Peter has gained a new perspective. He sets aside his prejudices, his preconceived notions, and even his deeply held beliefs because this is of God. And Peter is listening to what God is saying. But Peter is only one man. He's an important man in the early church, to be sure, but he is only one man. And he's about to come in and challenge the perspective of all of the believers. All the believers need a new perspective. So as I was reading about this in various commentaries, there was one fact that struck me as extremely significant. 
The Bible was written, as you and I know, on paper, on giant rolls and scrolls of papyrus with ink. The earliest manuscripts were written on these giant scrolls by hand with ink, and then they were copied meticulously by hand. So knowing this fact, you might think that economy of words would be the best strategy. Why say in 1,000 words what you can say in 100? And yet, here we are in Acts 11 with a record of Peter recounting the whole story again. The whole story of the vision has been recounted two times in full and complete and accurate detail. Peter is telling all the believers about this vision from God and about what that means for the church and for the Gentiles. Why would Luke, our author of Acts, do this? Why would he spend all that extra scroll space telling the same thing over and over again? Because it's significant. It's really, really significant. You see, just like Peter, at least some of the members of the church were extremely resistant to the inclusion of the Gentiles. We can read about their prejudices in Acts chapter 11. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. So in my ESV translation of the Bible, I read that these objectors were part of the circumcision party. This seems to be their big hangup because historically there were times when Gentiles were added into the family of God, were added into God's people and became Jewish. But a big part of that process was circumcision. It was sort of the price of admission, so to speak. But Peter responded by explaining this whole story and that when he got to the end, when he got to the part where the Holy Spirit comes through and comes into each of the Gentiles, just as the believers had experienced themselves, the proof is absolute. The Gentiles are invited in as well. And what happened next is truly incredible. Because just as God paved the way for Peter to have this revelation, he was preparing his church to truly begin to fulfill the Great Commission by sharing the gospel not just with the Jews, but with the whole world. Remember our memory verse from week one? It was Acts chapter one, verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The message of the gospel, it started in Judea. The church was growing and more believers were coming in all the time. And then Philip, after the believers are scattered, Philip ends up preaching the good news to the Samaritans, which for all intents and purposes, they were considered half Jews. So we've got a step in the right direction of including everybody. It was a step towards the mission. And then Peter accepts Cornelius, a Gentile, into the church. This was another step because even though they were allowing a Gentile into the church without circumcision, Cornelius was the one who sought after Peter, and he was already considered to be a God-fearing man. It was a one-degree step. But after this interaction, an unnamed group of believers travels to Antioch. Now, the believers are not just accepting the Gentiles, they are actively seeking them out. 
and the growth that results is explosive as more and more people hear the hope and the good news of the gospel. I actually found this really cool visual of a video of what this growth looked like that I'd love to share with you. Isn't that cool? All of this comes through a change in perspective. First, God changes Peter's perspective. And then he uses Peter to change the perspective of all of the believers. And from there, the believers, they go out with their new perspective and they share the gospel with anyone who is willing to hear and repent and accept. It's an incredible story laid out in Acts 10 and 11. But as we start to shift to chapter 12, we start to see a something different in the story. A few weeks ago, it snowed a lot. My husband ran the snowblower around seven in the morning, but by two, you could hardly tell that he had removed any snow at all and he was at work. So I decided that as a strong, independent woman, I was totally capable of finishing this task myself. So naturally, I immediately FaceTimed Tim for directions on how to turn it on and how to operate the snowblower and I started on my task. I thought through it a little bit in my head, like should I do rows or columns or should I do the driveway first and then the sidewalks or sidewalks and then driveway? See, each pass required me to turn the little crank to shoot the snow in either or direction. So obviously you don't wanna shoot the snow over where you've just plowed the driveway or the sidewalk. But inevitably I miscalculated something. And so I ended up having to go right back over parts of the driveway the second time after I had finished with the sidewalks. I was tired and I was frustrated and I sent my husband a text that said, well, I did my best. The neighbors can tell an effort was made and that's all I really care about. And I went back inside. You see, despite my best efforts, I had a short-sighted mindset with my snowblowing venture. In life, in business, in the church world, in leadership, we talk a lot about having a long-term perspective. We keep our eyes on the horizon. We play the infinite game. There are many metaphors for this kind of thinking, but the overall message is the same. Short-sighted thinking will never lead to the results that we're looking for. In order to do the big things that we dream of doing, we have to start thinking with a long-term perspective. But to be honest, I think it's actually a lot harder than it seems sometimes to keep an eye on the long term because when I read through the book of Acts, one of the things I find so admirable is the incredible early believers and their eternal perspective. The early church had an eternal perspective. Their eyes were fixed on Jesus and not on the earth. And as a result, their number one fear was not death. As we move to chapter 12, we read in those first verses that James was killed. And it can be tempting to kind of just move on from these verses and focus on the miraculous escape of Peter from jail because that's the kind of deliverance we like to see. That's the kind of deliverance that we can understand and rally behind and get excited about and tell the story of this amazing thing that God did. He freed a man from jail. Okay, the other guy he didn't free and he died, but let's just brush over that part, right? That's our tendency. But the truth is God was working in both of these situations. 
It's not the kind of deliverance that we get to see on this side of earth, but it was the kind of deliverance that requires faith. Faith that James, after his death, was brought before the throne of God and that it was glorious. You see, the Apostle Paul explains this perspective so succinctly in the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2, 20 to 21, Paul writes, For I fully expect the hope that I will never be ashamed and that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. You may have heard another translation that says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Living means living for Christ, but dying is even better. And of course, it's easy to spout off these ideas. It's easy to pay them lip service from the comfort of our persecutionless lives. But Paul was not just saying these words. You see, he wrote this letter to the Philippians while he was in jail, while he was facing down death himself. And he didn't know if this part of his story was going to end like James or if it was going to end like Peter's. He didn't know. But his attitude remained the same. You see, there was something about this early church and about the real actual persecution they faced and witnessing the deaths of the other believers around them, the threats and the arrests, it energized them. Rather than cower in fear, they were emboldened. And we read about this in earlier chapters when they're under this duress, when they're being arrested, when they're being told to stop spreading the message. Their response is greater boldness in spreading the message of the gospel. And their prayers are for increased bravery and boldness and opportunity. They don't pray away the persecution. They pray for themselves to be stronger in the midst of it. And it's because they have this eternal perspective. And if I'm being totally honest, I'm just not there a lot of the time. The truth is I don't want to die, at least not yet. I don't want the people that I love to die. I struggle to have an eternal perspective. I think a big part of that is the lifestyle we live here. We don't face persecution for our faith. We aren't facing life or death situations because we proclaim Jesus. In fact, it's mainstream in our country to be a Christian. And while that landscape is shifting a bit, it's still over half of the population claiming to be a Christian. We're not a minority, and we certainly aren't facing persecution. But because we're living in this comfort, it's harder to connect with an eternal perspective. It's harder to stand up and say, living means living for Christ, but dying is better. For me, this is a huge takeaway from the book of Acts. I want to gain this eternal perspective that the believers had. I want to see a story of death and a story of earthly deliverance as, with the same attitude that God delivers. I want to stop being so afraid of death and sickness and instead focus on the eternal. I want to pray harder for the souls of those who are far from God than for anything else I might ask for. I want an eternal perspective. So as we look at these three snapshots of perspective, the big questions I find myself asking are these. One, which of my perspectives need to change? Two, how can I be
be open to having my perspectives change? And three, how do I go about discerning this? Now, normally in Bible study, I like to ask the application questions along the way, but for today, I want to spend some time really thinking about this at the end. Because I think it's so important and it's extremely relevant in the culture that we're living in. I grew up in the heyday of the Left Behind book series. This fiction series, based on the book of Revelation, was a major fad in the church in the late 90s. There were adult books and kids' books, which I read, and eventually movies. And they were all visualizing the end times according to the Bible, or so I believed. It wasn't until years later, when I was in my first systematic theology class, that I learned that this viewpoint espoused by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins and all of their books and all of the subsequent sermon series that churches had as a result of these books, I learned that it was just one viewpoint of multiple. And they're all biblical. And they're all held by godly, God-fearing men and women who have researched and studied the scriptures and dedicated their lives to these studies and wound up at different conclusions from one another, different interpretations of the end times. And these ideas are not sacrilegious. They are legitimate and respected. And my world was opened as I studied that. You see, I was holding on to something unnecessarily, and I didn't even know it. I thought that to question was to sin. I thought that questioning was moving away from God and from what he was teaching, but the opposite was happening. See, no matter where I landed on the various theological points that I was studying, the truth is that God was teaching me more about himself and he was drawing me closer to him in the process. My questions, my doubts, and my honest struggles did not pull me further from God. They drew me closer to him and having the space and the freedom to ask those questions and wrestle through those things was so important in building my faith. And in the process, a lot of my perspectives changed. And a lot of my ideas about God and the world around me changed with them. You see, the early church was very good at listening to God and changing their perspectives accordingly. But this was lost just a few centuries later. Now the church is known for being closed-minded afraid of ideas, afraid of science, afraid of other perspectives, and afraid of anything that might upset the delicate balance. But as Christians, this shouldn't be our mindset at all. We shouldn't be afraid of ideas. What idea is bigger than God? What could science possibly prove that would disprove God and his love for us? What changes in our culture or in the political climate around us could crush the gospel? When we live in fear of those things, we are making God too small. And God is anything but small. As Christ followers, we can be open-minded. Although it's not the same as the way the world might view that phrase. How does a Christian become open to new perspectives? Well, I think there's three important things to remember. The author of our study put this beautifully on page 82. She writes, we want to hold unswervingly to our essential gospel beliefs without missing God's leading in gray areas because of short-sightedness. 
We hold to the essential gospel truth, the truth of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and raising again and forgiving all of those who repent. This truth has no wiggle room. There is no room for interpretation here. We hold this truth firm and fast. But then, as our author Melissa points out for us, we don't hold unswervingly to gray areas. We don't dig our heels in where God might be trying to show us a new perspective. Now, I hope you note that I said where God might be showing us a new perspective, which leads to the next point. We spend time in prayer, a lot of time, not just talking, but also listening. You see, Peter experienced a radical shift in perspective, but it came through prayer. Peter spent so much time in prayer that he couldn't possibly miss God's voice. And we read the same of Cornelius. He is in a time of prayer when he hears from God. See, prayer is communication with God, and when we give it the attention it's due, it becomes two-way communication, but we have to give it the time and the dedication it deserves if we want to hear from God. But for so many of us, and I know we've talked about this in our study and in our groups, having that dedicated time is hard. This isn't intended to beat anybody up or to make anybody feel bad. We all struggle. The culture we live in is a busy one, and it can be hard to set across enough time to really speak with God and to spend time listening for his voice in return. We have a lot of other sounds to drown out. We have a lot of things that we need to push to the side in order to sit and be with God the Father. But we can improve little by little, and we can encourage one another, and we can work at developing a richer prayer life with more time dedicated to listening to where God might be directing us next or encouraging us to change our perspectives. And the last thing we can do when it comes to being open to a new perspective is to prioritize unity in the church. The last two years have been a gut punch to the unity in the church. Most of us have never seen it so divided. And division is the result. People leave. People part ways. Relationships are severed in families and among friends. It's heartbreaking. Research suggests that estrangement in families is just on the rise and continuing to climb. That's really, really hard stuff. And among Christians, it should not be so. When Peter came back to Jerusalem, there was opposition waiting for him. Now Peter knew with total and complete confidence that his change in perspective was from God, it was right, it was good, and it was the direction of the church. When he faced criticism, he could have walked away. He could have accused the other side of standing in the way of what God was doing. He could have done so many things in the face of this opposition, but instead he built bridges. He explained as best he could what God was doing. He recounted in detail everything God had shown him up to this point in hopes that the believers would see things from his perspective and would get 
onto the wave of the movement that God was creating. He did not leave them behind, but instead he lovingly and painstakingly brought them in to what God was doing, even though they came at him guns blazing. Peter sought unity. For him, unity was more important than his pride. It was more important than moving ahead quickly with the mission. And it was more important than taking the group uh, who was on board with what God was doing and leaving behind the rest. He took the time, he humbled himself, and as a result, he won them over. Peter, in this moment, was following a direct commandment from Jesus. You see, on the night that we call the Last Supper, when Jesus was with his disciples and he was giving them his final instructions, this is what he said to them. John 13, 34 and 35, he said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you, so you must love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And Peter was right there listening. He was the next person to ask a question after these words were spoken. He was there and he was listening. And here in Acts 11, he puts this command into practice. He seeks unity with his brothers, even though they are wrong. And even though Peter is 100% positive that he is in the right and that this is what God is doing, he still seeks unity with his brothers. I think today we give up uh, too easily on each other. I think we find way too many hills that we think are worth dying on. They're not. You see, these secondary issues and these gray areas are not worth sacrificing fellowship and unity with other believers. That was not God's desire for his church then, and it is not God's desire for his church now. But oh goodness, this is hard to practice. If you're anything like me, I bet there are some Christians that make you pretty mad. I bet there are Christians that you believe are doing damage to the gospel because of their beliefs. I bet there are people in your life that you want to gently shout, you should spend less time on the internet. It will be good for all of us. I feel like as I was praying through this message, all of these people started just popping up on my newsfeed. But praise God for his gentle reminders and conviction. You see, this week God reminded me to be humble because I'm not always right. How can I sit in a position encouraging other people to change their perspective and encouraging other people to examine areas in life where they might be wrong without first looking at my own life, without first asking myself the question, when I get mad about something that I see that I think is wrong, do I ever sit and ask myself, might I be wrong? Is it possible that I'm actually the one who doesn't have this thing quite right? You see, if we all sought communication with that level of humility, how much less divisive would the, would the church be? We wouldn't all land in the same place on the issues, but we would seek unity above being right. We would, we would remember that the most important thing we have in common is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we would start to have a better perspective of where to place those secondary issues and those gray areas, that they are not hills to die on. And it's okay to have convictions and it's okay to reach different conclusions. But ultimately, at the end of the day, 
It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if you and I have that in common, that is of the utmost importance. God reminded me to seek unity rather than feeling that I'm right. He told me to cool down my perceived righteous indignation, and he reminded me that it's okay to question and to learn new things and to change my mind because he doesn't change. His truth doesn't change, and his gospel doesn't change, so I can trust him to lead me to new perspectives. You see, Acts teaches us that we can be open to new perspectives, but we have to humble ourselves and make sure that we're listening to God's direction as we seek those new perspectives. Praise God that I don't have to have it all figured out. And praise God that I can be flawed and wrong, and he'll use me anyway. And praise God that he will always point us in the right direction. Lord God, we pray um, a new perspective where we need one. We pray that you would come in with your gentleness and your love and that you would point us in the way you want us to go. We pray that as we approach situations that make us angry or confused or uncomfortable, that you would speak into those, that you would speak truth into those situations and that you would give us a humble spirit of listening. That even if we don't change our mind, we treat our brothers and sisters with gentleness and respect. And we pray a restoration of unity in your church. That even if we come to different conclusions, that you would give us the humility and the spirit to come together, Lord, under the most important thing is that is that you sent your son here to die for each and every one of us. And that is more important than anything else we could disagree on, Lord. Thank you for the stories meticulously documented of the early church and the struggles they went through. And just let that be an encouragement to us today, that there's nothing that you haven't seen before and there's nothing that we can't work through as your church, as your body of believers. In your name I pray, amen.